Hello and welcome back to the Total Football Analysis Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scully, and I hope you all enjoy the following episode. In last Friday's regular podcast, we looked at formations and whether they were even relevant or not in modern analysis, as well as whether or not we focus too much on the perception of formations as opposed to principles and overall structure on the pitch. This time around, we'll be looking at defenders and centre-backs in particular, analysing why consistent defensive contributions are so difficult, using case studies of players such as Virgil van Dijk at Liverpool this season, as well as others like Kaladu Koulibaly at Chelsea and even Antonio Rudiger at Real Madrid. This podcast is based on a recent magazine piece which has just been published in the March magazine titled Why Defensive Contributions Are So Difficult by coach Scott Martin, an opposition analyst for Vela's Club de Football and a regular contributor for the Total Football Analysis Monthly magazine. You can download the entire magazine as part of an all-access monthly deal with the website at just €5.99, which is the price of a pint, or else buy an all-access yearly subscription to read every piece of content we put out on the magazine and on the website for just €59.99 per annum. I promise it's worth it. You can read Scott's piece there after this episode is finished, and you can also read some of the other wonderful analysis articles on there. Before we begin, though, please make sure to rate the podcast. Five stars, hopefully. It's greatly appreciated, and it helps us to grow the podcast and to get more and more excellent guests on and to get more and more ears on the podcast as well. So now, without further ado, let's go speak to Scott Martin to see why consistent defensive contributions are so, so difficult. Scott, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. How have you been? I'm doing really well, Adam. So, yeah, everything's... Coming along here in North Carolina in the USA. So, it, how are things for you? It's really good. I mean, it, it's uh, the sun's almost going in over here. It must be what, about 10, 10 a.m. over there for you, 10 past 10. Yeah, right about that time. Yeah. I don't know how you can. I couldn't do a podcast this early. I think I recorded, um, I'm not going to say the name of the guest, but I had a podcast guest on a few months back and we recorded about half nine, 10. And I wanted to cry. Like, I mean, I was. <laughs> so tired i was trying to think of questions and i was like everything was all fuzzy on the screen and i'm just i'm not i'm not a morning person so thank you for agreeing to come on this early yeah no pleasure or no problem so just wake up a little bit earlier get a get that extra cup of coffee good to go um so the podcast today obviously i came to you with the idea it's about your it's based on your magazine piece that you did which has literally just been released today as a recording it will be out though on friday today is wednesday but for those listening, obviously, please do go check it out. It's a, a truly excellent piece. And when I read it, I thought I want to do a podcast on this. Um, it's obviously on why defensive contributions are so, so difficult. You use Van Dyke as, I'd say, the primary example in the piece, but it's not based on Virgil van Dyke. But what was the... It's not, Well, it's not solely based on Virgil van Dyke. Obviously, van Dyke is a, is a big part of that piece, but you talk about others. You talk about Milan Skriniar. You talk about Antonio Rudiger. You talk about uh, uh, Kaladu Koulibaly as well. What was the idea behind the piece? Why we've, I mean, you, you've written a couple of pieces in the past on defenders. I remember that wonderful one you did. I think, I think Jamie made it actually the front cover of the magazine with Maldini, was it? Oh yeah. Oh man, what a cover that was! What a cover! That was a nice oh, cover. Man. Yeah, yeah. Lessons in defense from Paolo Maldini. Yeah. Oh man, that was one of my favorite articles. Just watching those, uh, you know, those games from the eighties and nineties. So, How did you get clips for that? Did you have to go on like? Um... Do you have to go on YouTube and things like that? Because obviously Wisecout and Inns that wouldn't have access to games from, from that far back. Yeah, so it, now everything was pulled from Footballia. So <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> some of the images from the, the 80s, uh man, there were some big games that I really wanted to pull from, but 
you know, the, the camera images at the time, you know, they, for the most part, they were the, the square. Um, <laughs> so you got the very limited view of the pitch. It was a 20 by 20 yard area. Um, and then you could kind of gradually see the camera angle opening up and you started yeah. to see more of the pitch. So you know, to kind of measure like, you know, maybe the, the square images, uh, they'll be better for the individual mm-hmm. duels, that kind of thing. And it must've been difficult as well. Cause the footage would have been quite grainy at times too. And you're kind of just these grainy images with like, you know, a nice circle, a yellow circle. That's with a nice opaque bottom. So you can kind of see where the player is, but it's just all fuzzy. Yep. You know, I, I guess the upside is it limited my options. So, you know, there yeah. were just some games I couldn't use. Um, yeah. So, you know, it reduced the the pool of potential viewing, which, mm-hmm. you know, that, that helps too. <laughs> so why 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 Van Dyke then? Obviously, Liverpool have been struggling a lot this season, but when you thought up the idea to write this piece, why was Van Dyke kind of your main your main focus? I mean, he is the, the feature image of the piece as well. Again, a wonderful... A wonderful piece of art by Jamie Brackpill. But why Van Dyke? Well, so I guess the origin of this idea it really does go back a few years. Uh, and to be fair, it starts with Scrinier. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I do recall, you know, he had that that one big year at Inter where, you know, he was, he was linked with every massive club in the world. You know, I think Man U wanted him. Uh, you know, there were talks linking him to, to Spain as well. Um, he was the hottest center back on the market. So, you know, he, he really was the good person and enters the team that I follow closest in City A. So when that next season came along, Antonio, Antonio Conte came into the squad, um, changed their their structure, forced him into a new role. Um, it, it, his decline from one season to the next was just shocking. Mm-hmm. So that, I don't know, that, that just always stuck with me. And kind of planted this idea that center backs, regardless of their quality, uh, you know, because I I do think when you look at Skriniar, when you look at Van Dyke, the quality from one year to the next is there. You know, there there may be a slight dip in performance. Um, you could you probably see how uh, the mental aspect of the performance it, it could be lacking. There could be a lack of confidence there. Mm-hmm. Um, could be a little more performance anxiety. Um, but. On the flip side, you also see how the tactical demands of the coach and I think really the the role they're asking these players to play it does carry a major impact. Um, and not only that, but you know when you look at center backs, they they really are the last defenders on the pitch. You know everything that they do is is really contingent. It's a product of the work that's done in front of them. So you know ideally, if you have a center back who's an, a phenomenal leader, can keep the team well structured. Um, that work becomes a little bit easier. You know, teams that are a little bit more reactive, maybe they're chasing, maybe it's a man-marking system. Um, they have to be on their toes a little bit more. But it, there there were just so many factors that impact a center back's performance. Um, and it triggered that, that thought um, you know, that I really wanted to get to some of the reasons behind that, you know, either a dip in performance or, or even an, um, a positive increase from one year to the next. Mm-hmm. So, Scrinier was the the initial player to to produce that interest, and then Liverpool struggles this year, man. Um, I mean, they've they've just really brought that idea to the forefront again, and you know, I, I wanted to look at Virgil Van Dijk's season, um, especially looking at it through the the data. 
Mm-hmm. And I wanted to see how his performances related to the clubs as a whole. Um, and, you know, I wouldn't recommend, uh, you know, reading your, your, your everyday tabloid for, for tactical opinions, but I mean, you can see blame on Van Dyke, you know, the back line, the forward line, the mid, just every, everyone is to blame, you know, that's fair. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you read the, the full scope of those articles, yeah, they'll, they'll point fingers at everybody. Um, but it, it's a very broad brush. So I wanted to dig a little bit deeper with a little more precision and incorporate data to to really kind of get a glimpse of whether this was um, a little bit more general from the club or or if this this was coming back to Van Dyke and his performances. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it kind of poses something I thought of actually yesterday week when Real Madrid mauled. Liverpool at Anfield, as I'm sure you loved being a, a big oh, round. <laughs> but after the game, Jamie Carragher, who was, I believe, doing punditry for CBS, I could be wrong. I, think, I believe it was CBS. Yeah, that's right. Champion, yes, he does Champions League yep. punditry for. He said, and he made a comment about kind of Van Dyke a couple of weeks ago said something along the lines of Jamie Carragher wouldn't get into Liverpool's on, on Liverpool's bench or something like that. And Jamie Carragher hit back after last Tuesday and said, he said I wouldn't get onto Liverpool's bench. I take his place in the team now. It okay, like obviously there's a bit of a, a personal dig there, and I, I get that, but it, it does beg the question. Like I watched that game against uh, Real Madrid with Liverpool, and obviously the, the centre backs aren't soulless, or they're not blameless. But I also watched a 37 year old Luka Modric kill Liverpool's midfield, and you think, like I mean, every transition, I mean, they couldn't win anything Liverpool, and I think. I understand the centre-backs can be to blame and Joe Gomez was particularly poor. I mean, he the, the shot was deflected off him and he gave away the free kick for, uh, I think it was Militao's third goal or the, the third goal which scored by Militao. But you, you do think that like, surely the midfield has such a massive part to play in whether a centre-back does well because if it, they're easily bypassed, you're put into so many more defensive duels and actually this ties into your piece because you in your piece, talked about how many more defensive duels Van Dijk is competing in this season. And it's more than any other season uh, that he's been at Liverpool, full season, sorry. So that that doesn't include 17 and 18 because he only joined in the January of that window. But from 2018 and 19 until now, Van Dijk has never competed in more defensive duels per 90 than this season. And that kind of, I mean, is the reason for that, would you would you say, because the midfield is leaving them so exposed that he just is constantly engaged in duels? Yeah, you know, I think... Yeah, yeah so I'll say I my favourite players are typically centre-backs and defensive midfielders. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that's where I played as a kid. Um, and that's, that's really where the... I, I think the, just the way I see the game, it really comes from their perspective more so than anyone else um so when you look at a center back and how they operate their performances are very closely linked with the protection they're offered by their midfield so for you know for any squad and this is you know we can be talking about liverpool we we can even talk about um you know some of real madrid's difficult years after cristiano left and, and they were conceding goals like you know just at I think historic highs, you know, mm-hmm. and at least within a ten-year period, um, if the center backs are not protected, it doesn't matter what quality you have there. You can have a Virgil Van Dyke. You know, you, you could pair him with 
you know, Prime Sergio Ramos or Paolo Maldini, but if they're not protected and the opposition can have a run at their back line, you know, if they can receive between the lines or, or break that midfield uh, and and have a run at a retreating group of center backs, they're, your center backs are at a disadvantage. They're at a positional disadvantage. Their momentum mm. is carrying them in the wrong uh, direction. At that point, it's very reactive and their you know their best actions will be more containment than uh, pursuing the ball or, or really managing the structure of play um, and looking for those opportunities to to um, you know really engage and be aggressive in their recoveries. It's totally reactive at that point. Um, you know there are a few things that they can do to help themselves out with those uh, containment processes, but they have to be protected, and it doesn't matter who you have in the squad. When you look at, I think especially that Real Madrid and Liverpool game, the Real Madrid midfield just overran Liverpool. Um, and then I think especially you know when you have that advantage in midfield, and then you add in a dynamic wing presence like uh, you know Vinicius Junior, you're asking a lot of your center backs. You know, they mm-hmm. center backs and and I would say defensive midfielders as well. They don't like to engage from a position of weakness. You know, that's they don't want to concede that positional advantage. They don't want to engage the opposition on their terms. They want to play to be a little more predictable. So if the opposition can um can receive between the lines and turn get into a forward facing position, dribble at the back line, the advantage is theirs. Um from a defensive standpoint, you know, I, I think that's where um you know, especially with the struggling side like Liverpool, um, you know some of the, the things that I noticed that were really plaguing them were the the number of losses in their half of the pitch. Um, you know, really only 2018 and 19. You know, in the past five years, that was the only year where they gave the ball away more often in their half of the pitch, um, and they're also cons- um, recovering the ball far less than the opposition's half. So. It's, you know, with this squad, they're making more mistakes in their half of the pitch and they are, you know, they're less effective in recovering the ball mm-hmm. high up the pitch, um, which, you know, interestingly enough, when you look at their metrics, they're actually doing reasonably well in the high press. Um, it's really when you look at those, those mid recoveries that that's where Liverpool is really starting to have some issues. So, you know, it's. It is an interesting conundrum. You know, I, I think they are still getting decent pressure on the ball, uh, you know, which is paramount to the way Klopp sees the game. He he wants to engage the opponents high up the pitch. He he wants to put them under duress right away. Um and that's well and good. Uh, you know, I, I think Liverpool's forwards, you know, they are committed to to chasing the ball and putting opponents under pressure. But I think it is that next line that, you know, when they're in the high press, they're maybe not quite as structured or mm. compared this midfield to previous ones. They're not as industrious and not, not quite the, the blue collar workers in midfield <laughs> that's that you need. To run well, I mean, kind of you, you look at Saturday's result against Crystal Palace. They, again, I, I mean this in the most respectful way possible, but they started the game with Jordan Henderson, James Milner and Naby Keita as the midfield three. And Naby Keita has been, quite a divisive signing for a number of reasons. I mean, many could argue he hasn't quite worked out. 
he's won trophies with Liverpool, of course, and that's not. I mean, that's not necessarily a good way to see whether a player is actually done well or not at a club. Because when you look at great sides like Manchester United, I mean, Tom Cleverley has a Premier League title. Anderson has Champions League titles. I mean, you know, respectfully, again, I I don't mean um to be rude to these players like James Milner and Henderson, but when you're wanting to play in that manner, and as you said, they they seem to be struggling to to press in that middle third of the pitch with those players. So I think what I want to ask now, do, do you think that's where the problem stems? Because it, it's, it's, I mean, there's a million different theories we can try out as to why Liverpool have struggled this season. It could be off the pitch, could be on the pitch, but we can only see what's on the pitch. Do you think their, their, their lacklust, their lack of energy, I suppose, in the middle of the park, which is always what they had on the club with, Genie Wijnaldum, with Jordan Henderson, Fabinho, whoever played there, even James Milner a couple of years ago when he had more legs. Do you think that that now we're starting to see the kind of the age showing, and that's why they're struggling more now because by the midfield struggling, the backline then struggles because as we said, the centre backs are being engaged in more defensive duels. You don't want your defenders, your centre backs engaged in duels, really. I mean, it's the last thing you want because if if you have Van Dijk in a one-on-one with Vinny Jr. I mean, it's not really... I mean, it's far from ideal, especially if Alexander-Arnold's well up the pitch and then you have Van Dijk in a one-on-one. Okay, Van Dijk's a great defender and he could win it, but you would rather that stopped earlier than to the point where it's at your centre... It's your centre-back's job to stop it then. Yeah, it, well, and, you know, why, why take that risk? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I think that's a big part of it. Um, You, you want to minimise risk and centre-backs, even great 1v1 centre-backs like Virgil Van Dijk, um, there is still risk involved. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but yeah, you know, I, I think to your point, um, when you look at the squad, um, it is an aging midfield and you do have new players coming in. Um, you know, I, I think Elliot could make a good, uh, work his way into a, a strong, solid presence in that, uh, that Liverpool midfield. Um, but those types of transitions, you know, from, from your stalwarts to the new guys coming in, it does take a little bit of time. Um, there is, you know, that you're going to suffer some lumps. Um, I guess that's basically what I'm saying. So the age has definitely affected them. You know, I, I think if you put the, the Genie Wine, Alden Milner, if you put the, that midfield with this front line, I think that does solve a lot of the issues, you know, for talking about this midfield five years ago. Um, they were just tough to break down. It, you couldn't play centrally against them. Um, so it did limit the opponent's options in breaking the press. You know, a lot of times opponents had to go around Liverpool's press or try and get behind uh, Alexander Arnold or, or Robertson. So those were the best options to get out. Now, you know, I think we, we've seen pretty consistently this season that middle, uh, those three central channels. They are alternatives for teams now. You know, Liverpool doesn't quite have that bite to to funnel you centrally, and then overwhelm overwhelm you with their individual defensive quality. So, you know, and I think if especially if you relate this March magazine piece to February's magazine piece that I wrote, uh, which was on different types of pressing styles, um, you know, pressing or funneling opponents centrally, it can be lucrative in terms of the the opportunities that you have uh, on the counterattack going to goal um you know you and as a defensive team with, with your compact defensive shape 
you're pretty well set up to exploit the opponent's expansive uh, attacking shape. And I think, you know, historically, when you look at Klopp's style of play and really just the German school as a whole, that is one of the central tenets. You know, use mm-hmm. that positional advantage centrally to generate those counterattacking opportunities um, after a higher middle recovery. Um, but if you can't win the ball centrally and, you know, opponents are consistently beating the press, then you know, some kind of some configuration is needed. Um, you know, I, and I'm not Jurgen Klopp. I don't have that that kind of footballing mind. I, I don't know how you solve this problem. And <laughs> I think you can argue Liverpool as a whole, they are struggling. But it could be a personnel issue. I mean, as we said, it's clearly struggling for legs in the middle of the park to sound, or, you know, obviously that sounds quite basic. But I mean, it, it, when you see how Van Dijk has done so well in recent years, but then they haven't refreshed the midfield. So... Obviously, to tie it into the piece, we're talking about why defensive contributions are so difficult to be consistent. Well, when you don't refresh that midfield in front of you, yeah, it's going to be because you've lost legs there. If you look at all great centre-backs, I mean, uh, Rio Ferdinand, for example, at Manchester United was there for 12 years. He didn't have the same midfield in front of him. When Roy Keane, he had, I mean, originally he had uh, Varane, Roy Keane and Scholes. And then Roy Keane and Varane were gone. He had Michael Carrick in there, but he'd also have Darren Fletcher. He had Jason Park as well at times. The midfield is so so important to be refreshed because, again, if we if we still had in two thousand and I say we, I've just given away who I support there. I shouldn't have said that. If we, <laughs> if uh, we now we're both guilty. <laughs> yeah, we're both guilty. We're both delighted after last Tuesday. Um, so if if United still had Keane and Scholes in twenty ten as a midfield duo, I can guarantee you, Rio Ferdinand would have struggled a lot more. He struggled towards the end of his career eventually because of injuries, which is just. I mean, he was in mid-30s and then he went to QPR and it was just over for him then, fair enough. But the fact that Sir Alex did refresh that midfield was so, so important for him because we then he had Carrick in front of him. And Carrick was a wonderful, wonderful... Um, I wouldn't call him a Roy Keane type player because he wasn't. He was more, you know, he was more kind of quiet about it. He was more of a, an interceptor as opposed to a ball winner, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But he was so, so important at plugging gaps. And as I said about Van Dijk, Van Dijk's had the same midfield now for five, six years. When they lose legs, I mean, he's getting on in age as well, but when they lose legs, obviously he's going to be put in more difficult situations, which is the last thing you want to avoid. And while we're on the topic as well of pressing, and of course there's probably that, there's been no better team to talk about over the last five, six years than Liverpool with pressing. How does a centre-back, How in, you know way better than I would, but how does how should a centre back operate in a high press? You know what kind of what kind of things are we looking for? You know should like to know when to step up to drop back things like that when the press is beaten? Do they step up and try win the ball? Do they drop back towards their own goal? Is that maybe a, a tactical thing that managers talk about? You know how should the average centre back operate in a high press? Well, so I th- I think this is where you really see the the need for cohesion across the entire team. So it, it is very difficult to say, um, yeah, center back, just um, be ready to move into midfield if they play on the ground, be ready to backtrack. If they play in the air, you know, stay side on so you're ready to move forward or backwards. Um, make sure you can, uh, you know, cover the space behind your outside backs if needed. That is a simplified uh, version of what you could say to a center back. But the press starts from the top. So... You know, looking back at that that February article on on pressing styles, 
Um, the two types of high press that I, I looked at were, you know, the first one with immediate pressure. So think City, think Liverpool, um, think Arsenal, you know, those clubs that just, they, they want to get after the ball right away. Um, their objective is to put um, put that pressure on the ball to force that, that mistake, you know, create that pressing trigger uh, as high up the pitch as possible. So, and, and that's where the numbers you commit to the first and second lines of the press, those will ultimately determine how successful you're going to be. So if mm-hmm. the first line can chase and, you know, produce, uh, you know, a poor pass in the midfield or, um, you know, wrong foot a teammate uh, while playing him backwards or a square back, those are, those are things that the second line will target and, and they want to contest. So, uh, you know, and there is a little bit of a dichotomy in the, in the you know, usually four, uh, four to six players that you keep high up the pitch to to really engage in the, you know, typically five or six players that you keep a little deeper to uh, to really offer some balance in your structure and make mm-hmm. sure that if the press is broken, your back isn't broken. Um, so, you know, when you look at a squad like Liverpool that does get after the, the ball right away, they put a lot of pressure on the first attacker. Um, the pressure from the first line is great. Like you have to have that, and I th- I think Liverpool still does a good job of that. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, um, you know, no knock on forwards, but it at least simplifies the job for them. <laughs> so you're you're not asking for uh, some high level decision making <laughs> from a defensive perspective. So just get after the ball, put some pressure on it, yeah. and try and get them to to one side. That puts a lot of pressure on the second line, and really, that's when you're in the high press with immediate pressure on the ball. It's really that second line that has to to replay effectively and understand what the op, the upper uh, the opponent's options are so you know ideally ideal press your your high line has eliminated um you know short options along the back line you know maybe the goalkeeper's still available but um you know it, that's a negative pass you can chase and while also shadow marking the passer mm-hmm. um the second line is responsible for eliminating or at least making complicated the short and intermediate range progressive passes. So when you have a squad like Liverpool that, um, you know, I think they, you know, we, I would definitely say lack of legs in midfield um, and, and just kind of the, the lack of, um, defensive metal that we're, we're accustomed to seeing from that type of squad. I think this is where they get exposed. Um, you know, if your center back is, is as active as Virgil van Dyke is this year. Yeah. You have to ask your midfield, you know, where are the gaps that, that we're allowing the opposition to play through? Mm-hmm. You know, your job is to, to basically nullify the opponent's midfield. Um, they shouldn't be able to play centrally. And even if they get the first pass into midfield, they shouldn't be able to play out. You know, I, I think a lot of times when when we talk about, um, you know, funneling play, uh, like in Liverpool's case, you know, they were they were exceptional in previous years in allowing opponents to play centrally, um, but then winning that second pass. It, to me, it, it is that second pass that you're really playing for when you're funneling opponents into a specific area. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to intercept that pass that's, that's um, getting them out of, or intended to get them out of pressure. Um, 
Liverpool's really struggled in that area. And when you can't win that pass consistently, or if you're getting spun by 37 year old Luka Modric, um, those are, those are issues that, you know, transfer from your midfield to your back line and your back line is already, uh, you know, up against three or four opponents in a lot of cases. So now you're, you're really just complicating the, the job they have to do, the space they have to cover. Um, you know, this is where, um, for me as a center back in a high line, your biggest challenge is covering ground. Um, there's a lot of space to cover, you know, realistically your entire half of the pitch is wide open. You have a little bit of coverage from your, your goalkeeper, but if your midfield is consistently getting beat and, and now you have to worry about the threat of the first attacker dribbling at you and runners getting in behind, um, you know, centrally from the wings into the half spaces. I mean, there, there's just, there's a lot of chaos that you have to manage. Um, and, you know, I think with Van Dyke's example, he, I think given what he's had to deal with, he's actually done well this season. You know, yeah. it, it's, it's unfair to, to place this all on, on him or on any of the center backs. Mm-hmm. That's, that's not a situation that they should have to deal with on a consistent basis. Well, I agree. And probably the best example of this where the center backs were blamed so much was the recent I believe it was 3-0 loss to Wolves at, the, at Molyneux and there was one example I'll give you that I remember so well is when Darwin Nunez was pressing and he didn't he didn't apply a cover shadow well enough so the ball was easily able to play in behind them so I think it was uh, Jose Sa, the the Wolves goalkeeper, I think he was in the, in goal yeah, I'm pretty sure he was, he slipped it into I think it was Matthias Nunes um, or Nunes, is that how you pronounce it? Nunes, yeah. Nunes, uh, Matthias Nunes and I think the ball was slipped into him and then because the ball was played into Nunes, Stefan Bajatic had to step forward then, he left his man, I think it was maybe Neves or maybe it was Neves that the ball was played, I can't quite remember the order but Bajatic had to step forward then and leave his man and because of that then Liverpool centre-back had to step into midfield and I think it's not. I understand that centre backs sometimes have to do that and they have to go into midfield, but it's not really an area you want to be in because you can get caught in no man's land there. You really can, especially with like um, things even like counter pressing. I noticed a couple of weeks ago, and this is why having certain player profiles in your backline is so so important. I mean, I remember the w- one example against I can't remember the team, but I think it was actually West Ham. Harry Maguire was playing in defence for Man United, and. Man United play a high line, and when they lose the ball, Verano Martinez, both pretty quick off the mark, they step forward, they 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 step forward to try and win the ball, they don't drop back. Maguire stepped forward as well, but the big issue with Maguire compared to a Verano Martinez is obviously he's just nowhere near as quick. And he stepped forward into midfield. He realised too late that he wasn't, wasn't going to get to the ball. West Ham played him behind them, and they nearly scored from it. And I think it's just not an area you want to be in when you're not comfortable. When there's no midfield there and you're stepping into midfield, you've got it. I mean, if you're comfortable, like Veran Martinez, comfortable, okay, that's fine. I mean, Martinez has played in midfield before. There's no problem being in those areas. But when you're not comfortable in those areas and you're asked to step into them inside your own half to kind of counter press and stop the opposition as high up the pitch as possible, it's really, really dangerous for a defender because, again, and this is, as I said, this is why profile of players in the team is so so important if you're going to play a high line you've got to have someone who's comfortable in the high line van dyke is comfortable in the high line of course but somewhere along the along the line when you talk about the midfield and the forwards 
there's a lack of cohesion there and something's gone seriously wrong where they look uncomfortable and they're being forced. The centre-backs are being forced into into areas that they don't want to be in. They're forced into duels that they don't want to be in. Nobody wants to be in a 1v1 with Vinicius Junior. Nobody. Not a single defender on this planet wants to be in a 1v1 with Vinicius Junior, but they're being forced into these into these battles with these players because the midfield and the forwards haven't done their job somewhere along the line. And we can talk about, you know, something I actually I want to move into is the fact that in your article, you wrote about how a lot of that has to do with a kind of a change of system and maybe a change of, you know, whether you play on the left or the right or a change of formation, change of manager, etc. In Van Dijk's case, in Liverpool's case, that's not, that isn't the case because Klopp's been there since 2015. He's been there seven and a half years. So just there's clearly tactical issues and personnel issues as opposed to management changes. But in your piece, you also argue the case for management changes and formation changes being a big reason. And what I'm alluding to is Milan Skriniar again, as we touched on at the start. In 2018-19, I believe, he was playing in a 4-3-1 under Luciano Spalletti. And on the left side... And then Conte comes in and he's completely switching sides and he's playing a different formation on a different side. What kind of impact would that have on you? It clearly had a massive impact on him that season, 2019-20. Because I think actually he was was he dis was he displaced by Diego Godin at one point too? And Diego Godin was pretty it was that season. I can't remember I can't quite remember yeah, the, the exact right. backline, but it was a very aging backline. I remember at one point even I think it was Andrea Vernocchi was playing at, at the back for Inter, which is Andrea Ranocchi has was at Inter for a long time and it was and <laughs> never managed to, to really yeah. <laughs> a regular so I mean, I, he, he went out on loan the whole city at one point I, I mean that really gives you a sense of Skriniar's struggles that season yeah um, he he looked like a fish out of water mm. so and, and this is where you know I think you can point to the fact that we are creatures of habit so you know if you if you do have a, a left center back who is um very much accustomed to um, you know, leading the build out from that specific side. He has certain teammates that he's used to connecting with certain angles to play forward. Um, and then you totally displace him by, you know, changing the system, putting him on the other side of the pitch. Um, I, I mean, it, you might as well um, just, uh, well, I don't know. I, I guess they did change the manager. I just, I guess it did change the system. There were likely a few changes in person. I mean, it, it was a, a totally new environment. And that's, you know, I, you don't see many clubs just totally flip the script and have a lot of success right away. I mean, look at Chelsea this year. I mean, it, going from Tuchel's system to now Graham Potter's, it's really difficult to to totally change your tactics. Um, you know, the way you play the game, your personnel, how they're implemented and expect the results to come especially, right away. Especially when you have like 400 players in your squad. I mean, it doesn't, it's far from <laughs> ideal. How do you manage that? Yeah, it's crazy. I was, I was only thinking about this morning. Like, I know this is off topic of it, but like Graham Potter is coming into training every day and he has 30 odd players for sessions. That's bizarre. It's so difficult to get continuity in terms of your, your drills and what you want to get across when there's 30 something players you're training. But getting back and, and up, to... has twenty unhappy players. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's it, it's so bizarre. But getting back to the point, Inter Milan improved under Conte, which is strange. Like it was like the whole squad improved and they improved on the table. They finished second by a couple of points. 
and they got to the Europa League final, but Skriniar didn't. Yeah, it's it was definitely an odd situation. Um, so I, I think you could argue in eighteen nineteen he he arguably was the most influential player in the squad. Um, so I, you know, I guess this is credit to Antonio Conte and the the game model that he implemented. Um, you know, it it was a little bit less um, reliant on the players at the back putting on Herculean performances and. Uh, you know, I I think you you could say that his system probably simplified the way interplayed and mm-hmm. gave a little more attacking freedom to the the players up top. And I think it was that year that uh, we really saw Latero Martinez really become uh, you know a household name. So, um, you know, when he came in, it, whatever he did, it it worked out well for the attacking players. Um, but you did see some ramifications for uh, some individuals in terms of their their performances. Um, and, you know, I think for for a player like Skriniar, you know, it, it really does so show that you can have the same level of talent from one year to the next. And, and even, I think, the following year, um, he, he was able to really recover form and, mm-hmm. and start to um, become a more influential player in the squad, come, kind of recover that status both in the team and uh and globally as well but if you are going to to displace one of your players you know move him from one side to the other uh, or just put him in a totally new role um, different setup around him which inevitably means different personnel available to him um there is an adjustment period and you know i i think it would be unreasonable to to expect the same level of influence as the players learning a new role, I, and this is where um, you know I think the the quality of the coaching and, and um, the attention to detail in helping uh, bridge that gap from where the player is to to where he needs to be is is so important. And it's so bizarre because you touched on this earlier, but in 2019, Skriniar was linked with some of Europe's biggest clubs because he was doing so well. Whereas in 2020, he was kind of linked with so many clubs because he was seen as. Get him off you the know, books. Yeah, get him off the books. He was seen as a, I'm trying to think of the, the phrase. The liability almost. Yeah, it was like, we, we need to get rid of this guy. And it was so, such a bizarre 12 months. And one of the things I want to ask you is, why do some defenders, and what's the difference? I know obviously you, you have the extra man, but some defenders crumble in a back three. And some defenders are brilliant in a back three. You look at David Luiz at Chelsea. He was a disaster in a back four, always has been. No, no disrespect to him, he's a better defender than I'll ever be, but he, you know, in a back four, he's can be quite a liability. But then in a back three under Antonio Conte, the same manager, 16, 17 season, he was incredible. Playing with um, Gary Cahill and Cesar Aspilicueta either side of him. Why does, I mean, what, why do some defenders struggle when they, when they change, you know, formation, especially with a back three and a back, and a, and a, a back four, sorry, like what's the, I mean, what what are the biggest drawbacks and benefits of those two systems? Like, a back three can kind of maybe mask deficiencies more so than a back four, but then because you have an extra man, better defend the struggle a little bit. Yeah, you know, I think this is where, um, you know, we can look at um, Prime Juventus under, uh, you know, with Chiellini and Barzali <laughs> as the, the two wide center backs with Bonucci in the middle. You can even look at... Um, you know Rudiger's transition from Chelsea to to Real Madrid, which you know is 
part of that that last section of the article um when you're in a back three i guess we could say if you have players who are maybe less sure-footed on the ball um you know they they are um maybe not quite up to to par with their passing range um maybe somewhat sometimes it's deficient uh decision making you know in terms of the opportunities that they're seeing in front of them if you're in a back four um your opportunities centrally are fairly limited um you know when you look at most back four setups when the midfielders check in they're either coming into line with the the center backs to split them out wide which i think makes the center backs job a little bit easier mm-hmm. or if the center backs are responsible for progression you know they're they're typically tasked with playing around the press and you know especially looking to play high into the wings to to get the ball into their their playmakers in a back 3 there's a little less emphasis on their distributions from the back um at least i would say more complicated distributions um so if you can split a player like rudiger into the half space he he should have a little bit of space that he can dribble into um you know if he can get one of the the uh the opponent's midfielders or uh, maybe a wide forward to step out of the press to come forward to pressure him that opens up a little bit of space around him for his immediate network. So there typically is a very simple pass out to the winger or into your midfielder who can then hit the, the winger as that, that third man. Um, that picture changes when you go to a back four, um, you know, your, your outside backs are typically going to move a little bit higher up the pitch. Um, and, you know, I, I think that, the, the passing demands placed on the center backs are just at a much higher level. So when we've seen um, this season with Rudiger, you know, there, there have been a couple times where he's made some suspect passes centrally that, uh, that were intercepted and I want to say on a couple of occasions led to goal. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, even there you can see just that transition from, you know, a left center back to, uh, you know, in a back three to left center in a back four, you know, there is a little bit of a learning curve there. You know, the the same options aren't available. Can't quite be as aggressive at exploiting space on the dribble. Um, and if you do, you have to have the understanding that that space closes really quickly. Um, the yeah. opponent, any opponent that that gives you space central is, um, you know, probably a team you're going to pick apart one way or the other. <laughs> Most squads don't give you that space. So it is a new reality. Um, you can't bring the same approach in a back three that you you have in a back four and you know going back to that that prime Juventus squad you know it's it's not by chance that Chiellini and Barzazzale were on the the outsides of that back three while Mm -hmm. Bonucci the top passer of the bunch was central um you know if you are that central player in a back three um you know you're there for your your passing range you know if you're the other two players you're probably more there in that lineup for your defensive qualities than for your your attacking contributions. Um, and when you are tasked with, you know, progressing the attack, the option, if you want those players to be successful, you typically have to simplify exactly what they're looking for. Uh, and a lot of times that does mean playing around the press or, you know, if you do dribble forward to exploit that little bit of space, there are very specific things that you're looking to produce from the opponent to cue that next action from the ball carrier but even Uh, defensively like you you talk about being aggressive on the ball and that's completely true but even defensively 
in a three, you can be far more aggressive defensively because you can step into the midfield more because you have that extra cover at the back, whereas in the back four, you need to have better. That's just This is just my opinion, and I could be wrong. I've had this debate with someone before. But I suppose you can be a little more aggressive in a three because you do have that extra cover at the back. So when you step out, the other two can close in there and you essentially have like a four, if you're especially if you're defending in a back five. When you're in a four, you step into that midfield, you've got one, one centre-back covering. And it's way more difficult and it's much more stretched. And so you've got to have better communication almost with the midfield. Whereas in a tree, you don't really, you still need to communicate with your midfield, but you can be a little more aggressive and go, okay, if he's, if my number six is picking someone up already, that's okay. I'll step out and I'll mark him. No problem. And then I'll, when he gets into a non-dangerous area, I'll just come back into my position. Whereas in a four, if you do that, you know, for a fact that winger's going to make a diagonal run behind you and, and it's going to be found in space, oh, yeah. you know? So like, I think that's where, and you're right, you can just almost be like with Rudiger at Chelsea. It was so aggressive. Like when Chelsea were defending in a mid-block or a high press, if it reached the space between the lines, he was on you. He was on you straight away. Like he won't let you move. But if you're in a four, you've got to be more, a bit more disciplined with your position because if you step out of the back line, there's a big gap at the back because your fullbacks are stretched already and then you have one guy covering and you really don't want one centre-back covering you behind. It's not, especially mm-hmm. if it's someone who's maybe not the quickest. <laughs> yes. You know, if, if, if you're if you're a Rudiger playing with a Harry Maguire and you know you step in the midfield and that ball's over the top. Pff, Game luck. over. Yeah, <laughs> especially <laughs> if it's a, a Rodrigo or a Vinny Jr. I mean, good luck. So this is where I do think that relationship between the back line and the midfield is so important. Um, you know, it, I guess when you look at um, rest defense structures along the back, um, I mean, my two favorite setups are a 3-2 or a 2-3. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, there are some squads that um, that will use like a midfield square. Um, so the two center backs and essentially two holding mids. So when I look at um, Real Madrid against Zinedine Zidane, that, that was something they implemented. So, you know, it was Ramos and Ferran at the back. Um, Casemiro would typically slide to the right center portion of the pitch while Cruz would drop in basically as a Regista. They were mm-hmm. essentially replicating Pirlo and Gattuso. So, and that structure centrally, um, that made it very difficult for opponents to play into them. And, and re- that squad knew that if they could um, take away the middle, force opponents into the wings with the individual quality they had at the back, they'd be okay. You know, they, there was still a little bit of a risk just having the four there. Um, but more often than not, those guys were they were going to handle it. Um, so, so, but that's where, you know, I, um, I do prefer to have that extra man back. You know, if you have, um, actually, I think Manchester city is a perfect example here. Um, you know, when you look at you know, the way they've used Kyle Walker over the years, there were matches where he essentially formed a, a back three mm-hmm. and, um, you know, that allowed the, the left back to push forward and they kept two midfielders a little bit deeper uh, to give them that three-two setup, that gave them some protection against teams like Real Madrid, um, that would or or even Liverpool that would look to attack through their high wide playmakers. You know, if if they could get the ball into the wingers um, and let them have a go at the the back line, you know, that was their preferred way to make up that ground and and to move the ball up the pitch. When you have the the two-three setup, there's you know typically one opposition forward that you have to worry about. Um, but you're more likely expecting the the opponent to try and hit their um, 
they're counterattacking targets centrally and on the ground, or you know maybe in the half spaces in midfield, but you know essentially on the ground. Um, so where you place those players has a direct um, direct link to how you expect the opponents to attack. And um, you know I, I think having that variability like Manchester City did that that's incredibly helpful. Um, but when you do have teams that set up exclusively in one system or the other, um, you know, say a, a Chelsea with, uh, you know, a very consistent 3-2 at the back under Tuchel, that, you know, I, I think there's a, maybe a little more clarity of the role for a player like Rudiger, um, mm-hmm. where he is encouraged to step forward into midfield and and he definitely has the the mobility to to cover the ground in front of him as well as behind or out wide. Um so, you know, to me, that's that's an example of playing to the, the strengths of your center backs and designing your system to to really allow their strengths to shine. So, um, you know, credit to Tuchel, he, he had the personnel um, that I think best suited his system. Um, and then he, he gave them the, the conditions to play that best suited them. Um, so you know, it's definitely a different experience for a player like Rudiger going to Real Madrid, playing in a a back four, and you know he's played a little bit on, as an outside back. But you know, when he does play centrally, it is just a different experience for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have seen some growing pains. I, I wouldn't say he's played poorly. You know, he's done well, um, but he hasn't lit the world on fire with his performances. You know, I, I think the same could probably be said of Koulibaly, though. You know, maybe maybe more consistent performances now that he's in a back four, but mm-hmm. you know, still again, just uh, overall problems within the squad, which, you know, maybe that's uh, an extension. It's hard, it's hard to article. judge a Chelsea player uh, individually. I feel this season, considering it's just a disaster, right? just on all fronts, just from the, from the players that is the transfer windows that is to the management. I mean, I feel so, I feel sorry for the fans because it's just, a, it's just a complete disaster. I've never seen anything like this. I've never seen a team with two of the odd players, that have six unregistered. I mean, again, the, the, the podcast is not about Chelsea, but I just find the whole thing just overly bizarre. I think yeah, um, I, thirty players who could play on almost any squad in the world. Yeah, well, I mean, that's just confounding. Well, in the transfer window in the summer, there's going to be a couple of of of, of Chelsea players that you'll be able to get for a, a a solid price that can do a job for a decent team. Um, I think the key takeaways from this podcast and from the article in general is that. For consistent defensive contributions, the changing of personnel in front of the back line is so so important. You know, to and the reason why defenders aren't maybe as consistent is because again, and as we said, a change of manager in the piece you mentioned that um, usually managers will change every year or two, and it is a great point because they would. And then, like ultimately, you might be playing in a in a low block for most of the game on the one manager, and then six months later, you're playing in a high line and it's really difficult to kind of adapt to that. And that's why your defensive contributions are so inconsistent. So yeah, I, I mean, the change of manager, the change of of, of 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 league as well, if you're going from a La Liga to a Premier League or vice versa, it's a, it's a lot different because it's, I mean, the styles are different. The tempo is different of the leagues. The physicality is slightly different. So you're right. No, I think, and they're my key takeaways from the article and the podcast itself. So, Scott, I just want to thank you so much for coming on and, and, and imparting your wisdom on it. I really enjoyed this episode. And uh, last thing I'll ask you is where can people find you? Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter at, um, I think it's Coach Scott Copy. So um, a little less active on Twitter these days. Um, <laughs> keeping busy with uh, with coaching university here in the USA. Um, 
but yeah, you can find me on Twitter. Um, my website is um, scottmartin.com. Actually, yeah, I'll <laughs> so you can see how active I am on uh, on the website too. So at least for right now, best way to find me, go to Twitter. Um, I have the link to, to a website. Uh, get to the website. I'll get you to all the articles that I've written, podcasts, you name it. Um, but yeah, Adam, it, as always, been a pleasure. Um, always enjoy talking to you. So, and I want to give you and you and the uh, some of the other guys, um, just especially you though, credit for the podcasts that have come out. Thank um, you so much, especially in recent months. I, I mean the the um, positional play versus functionalism podcast. Those were those were phenomenal to listen to. Thank and, you so much. Really sparked some some thoughts that I'll, I'll carry forward and uh, look to test yeah. in in the coming months. Well, I've said this on the podcast before, but when we did those two episodes, and they are the two most recent I did with Kyo and I did with Brian last week as well on formations, the feedback has been, and in terms of just the listener, the listeners, the number of listeners has been crazy. I mean, like I, I was surprised to be honest. So. I know this is a bit of a, a behind-the-scenes conversation, but I felt we can keep going with these types of conversations because people clearly enjoy them. So, Scott, thank you so much for coming on. And as I said, the magazine is out there now. You can buy it for five ninety nine. You can buy it with the all-access monthly membership for five ninety nine euros, or you can get the yearly all-access membership for fifty nine ninety nine euros. To all the listeners at home, I hope you enjoyed as well. And make sure to tune in on Monday for another episode of the TFA Scouted Podcast with Brian and I. Also, make sure to rate the podcast too and share it with your followers, friends, and family as it really helps us to grow. Thank you all for listening and goodbye for now.